So let's give our attention to God's Word. Acts chapter 2, 22 through 41. A little bit longer selection tonight. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you, your, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are, afar, who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and, they, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of God stands forever. So let's pray before we consider it further. Heavenly Father, again, we are here tonight for a few minutes to have you speak to us from your word. And we pray that since these are your words, that you will be with us by your Holy Spirit and teach them to us. That you will open up our hearts, our ears, our minds, our eyes, so that we might be able to see and hear. So that you would show us something of yourself, of your grace and your mercy in Jesus Christ to us, we pray. We ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, I want you to think about the last time that, or maybe not the last time, the, big, the biggest news you've ever gotten. Um, the time when uh, you had that, that piece of news that sort of changed everything. You know, when somebody said, I, I've really got something important to tell you. Um, you know, sometimes it's, it's phrased, you have people say things like, all right, I've got some big news. I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news. And when that's the case, when you have bad news and good news, what are you hoping for? You're at least hoping, right, that the bad news will outweigh the good news. Um, the, whatever. You want the good news to outweigh the bad news. It depends on who you are. All right. Bad illustration. You want the good news to at least outweigh the bad news. 
And that's what, that's what really we see here in this passage tonight. We see Peter is giving a message. He's really giving the message of Christianity. And he shows us here that he's got big news for us. And essentially he says, I've got some bad news and I've got some good news. And the bad news is in fact really bad, and the good news outweighs it. So we're studying through the book of Acts this semester. And we're doing that because Acts is the story of the church. And we're asking ourselves in the the text the question, what is it about the church that's so special anyway? What is it that's unique about Christianity and the church? And the reason we're asking that question is we're really trying to battle against the the boredom, I think, that we all can tend to share with the church, with Christianity. You know, we ask ourselves, is, there, is the church really relevant anymore? What's it all about? And so we're looking at it, we're asking ourselves, what, what's so special about the church? And we've looked at, the first week we saw that the church understands reality. Christianity understands that it's part of a kingdom, that Jesus is coming, bringing his kingdom to this world, and we understand everything in light of that. Church understands reality. Last week we saw that the church has the very spirit of God empowering it. And this week what I want us to see is that the church is armed with a message. The church has a message. Christianity is really in many ways about news. It's about good news that the world needs to hear. And we get a glimpse of what that message is right here in Peter's sermon at Pentecost. So again, remember where we left off. Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit. It came uh, in the wind and the fire. Remember the fire comes and settles over their heads and the wind rushes through the room. And they begin to speak in other languages. And they're at Pentecost. So there's lots of other people there from all over the, the known world, at least. And they begin to hear people that they know shouldn't speak their language are speaking their language. And they're telling about God and his kingdom. And so that we left off, they were sort of wondering what in the world's going on. Some people were saying, those guys are drunk. And Peter says, stands up and says, no, they're not drunk. Let me tell you what's going on. Let me tell you exactly what this, what this means. And that's a sermon that we just read. Um, he gives them and us a message in this sermon, and it's essentially this. I broke it down into three very, very broad components. I want to look at them uh, tonight quickly. Basically, Peter says, first, Jesus is the Messiah. Secondly, you killed him. And thirdly, repent and be baptized. So first, and I, I debate, I've gone back and forth whether to do the first one first or the first one second, but... Jesus is the Messiah. So Peter, in his sermon, he makes it very clear that God is up to something in history. I don't remember how many times I counted, but all throughout this passage, Peter's saying, God, 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 God. God is doing something big in, in history. And look at verse 36. You see, let all the, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. He says that Jesus is the Lord. He says that he's God Almighty and he's the Christ. Now, we know what, probably know what God Almighty means. So what does it mean when we say Christ? You know, we probably typically think of it that it's Jesus' last name or something. And that, that's not the case. Um, Christ is a very particular term and it essentially means the anointed one. Okay? means anointed one. It's the same as the Hebrew word Messiah. Um, 
so what does that mean? Anointed to do what? Well, you got to remember some of your Old Testament history, really the broad scope of Old Testament history. Um, God has a people. He, he's crafted out this people for himself in the, in the Israelites. And he's, you know, he leads them out of Egypt through the wilderness and he brings them into the promised land. And they continue to reject him. And eventually he exiles them. He lets other countries take them over. And so they're scattered all over the place and they're not... You know, they're not on top anymore like they used to be. They don't feel like they're God's favored people. But he's made promises to them, and he continues to say that there's gonna, I'm going to send, basically, I'm going to send a hero. I'm going to send the one. I'm going to send the Messiah who's going to come, and he's going to put everything back the way it's supposed to be for you. He's going to come, and he's going to put you back on top, so to speak. going to send a hero. He's going to be the ultimate prophet, priest, and king to come and lead my people, and bring things back uh, to, the, to the way they're supposed to be. And so really, every Jew, in a sense, is waiting for the one to show up. You're waiting for the hero. It's, it's sort of a distant, or it's absolutely a distant parallel um, illustration, but you, know, you think about any team, any sports team is waiting, especially colleges probably, are waiting for the, the one recruit that's going to come along and put the program back you know, to, where, to the glory that they think it should have. You know, if, you're, if you're basketball, uh, and you know, what the, you know what the one's supposed to look like. Right? If, you're, if you're a basketball fan, you're all about the, you, know, you want your coach on the recruiting trail and after the one guy. And you're hoping for him. And you know what he's supposed to look like. He's supposed to look like, what, 6'5", at least, He's going to be big, he's going to be strong, he's going to shoot three-pointers, lights out, he can drive to the basket, handle the ball, he's clutch. You know what he's supposed to look like. Um, you know, in fact, Cleveland, right? that's why everybody's so mad at LeBron, especially for, from Cleveland. They even called him the chosen one. right? And you've seen what happens when the chosen one leaves. You lose a record amount of games. So everybody, if you're a Jew, you're waiting for the one. And every time, if there's whispers about it, you get excited. Maybe now, maybe now the hero showed up. And Peter stands up and says, Jesus, that guy, he's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one. He's the Christ. Now think about why that's so... That would have been unimaginably earth-shattering. And why is that? Well, think about what Peter's saying. If you're expecting the one, Peter says it's him. Uh, the, the guy that was born of the poor family, there was always some uh, question, some sketchiness about you know, where the, who his dad was anyway. Um, poor family, uh, he was, he was uh, you know, his whole life was really not much to speak of. He was, kill, he was embarrassingly killed on a cross by the Romans, and, and now he's dead, apparently. And that's the hero. Imagine saying that this is the guy that's going to fulfill all the promises. Right? It's crazy. It's like going to the press conference. You know, you hear about we've got the recruit at signing day. He puts the hat on. You can't wait to see this guy. And he's like 5'5". Five, five. He weighs 135 pounds. And he walks with a limp. You're like, this is the guy that's going to put us back national championship. You think, uh, no, he's not. It's not possible, Right? How can the Messiah look like that? It doesn't seem to make any sense. But Peter argues, if you notice, from the Old Testament, 
that this guy, this Jesus, actually is the one. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ. Verse 23. He's the one that was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and then was raised from the dead to prove it. And Peter tells them that this was God's plan because this is what the Messiah has to look like. Now why? Why would the Messiah have to look like this? Because of what we see in verse 38. Look at verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. The Messiah, or Jesus, came to save his people from their enemies. But what he knows is that ultimately their enemies aren't the other people, the other countries. Their enemy is the sin that's inside of them. And so what he does is he comes and he takes their place and dies in their place. So he comes as the suffering servant because he's taking suffering on himself. So you could say it like this, that Jesus is the Christ not in spite of dying on the cross, but because he dies on the cross. Right? Does that make sense? It's not that the cross is sort of this embarrassing moment that, you know, sort of, well, you kind of got to look past that. He's really the Messiah. No, that's the reason he's the Messiah, because of his dying on the cross. It seems so backwards, but it's actually brilliant if you think about it. It's the biggest plot twist ever. You don't see it coming, and it doesn't make sense, but once you get it, Everything begins to make sense. Um, So what does that mean for us, real quick? Well, it means this. That's a message that will change the world. That's a message that you can get fired up about, I believe. It's a message. Only the message of Christianity says that there's a God that requires something from you and yet provides what he requires. Every other religion, every other system of thought in the world essentially has some sort of deity or higher power saying, if you want blessing or reward or life or whatever it is you're looking for, then something's required of you and you need to meet it in order to get blessed. But in Christianity, the story, the message that it has is that that the Messiah looks like this because he came to take your place. In other words, that God Almighty himself came and subjected himself to the curse. He's the one that switched places. You know, what a beautiful message. Um, and so ultimately it means that the message of Christianity is one of grace. It's a message that's free to people. So secondly, see that Jesus is the Messiah. And then secondly, Peter says, you killed him. Um, this message obviously is not just entirely good news. In fact, there's, a, in a sense, a lot of bad news here. Uh, and we see that bad news at least twice in verse 23 and verse 36, where Peter says, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one we've hoped for, but there's sort of this big problem, right? And it's this, you killed him. He's the one that we've pinned all of our national and religious hopes on, and you killed him. Right? Can you imagine uh, Peter's pretty straightforward here. He doesn't, he doesn't bother pulling any punches. Can you imagine how terrifying it would be for that to begin to dawn on you? That really is the one we've been waiting on. And the one that we've been waiting on is actually God himself, the God that made us. And you were responsible for his death. 
you killed him, or at least you wanted him killed. That he was the one and only that you had hoped for, the one that created you and, and you killed him. It's sort of like, it made me think of any good horror movie that has sort of the monster, like your Freddy's and your Jason's. You know, there's typically a moment where um, generally he's busy, like, killing someone else. And so another good, you know, one of the good guys sneaks up and tries to attack, you know, the monster. And, you know, you shoot him with a shotgun, you hit him in the back with an axe. And you think you've got him, you've blasted him with whatever you got. And then he just turns around and looks at you. You know, and you realize, or they realize, right, unless that's happened to you. Character has that look on their face of like, oh no. <laughs> I have just upset and offended the most powerful thing I've ever thought of, right? A person that I was just running, they were behind me walking, and they caught me. <laughs> and now I've been very clear about the fact that I want it dead, and I didn't even phase it. There's just this sort of hopeless feeling. Um, that's sort of what Peter's saying here. That you've actually, you've offended the most powerful, powerful thing you, you can even conceive of. You, you wanted him dead. In fact, you killed him. Um, you've rejected God and you've, you've really put yourself in a position that you can't fix. Nothing you can do about it. All right, so you might be thinking, but okay, it's fine, but I didn't kill Jesus. Right, it's 2011, I'm only 20 years old, I don't have anything to do with Jesus' death. And to that I would say, of course that's true in, in one sense. But do you think that Peter thought that all 3,000, at least 3,000 of the people that heard him speaking that day, do you think they all killed Jesus? Don't you think that he knows that not all of them uh, actually physically took part in Jesus' death? Of course he does. Um, but... He can address everybody in that way because in a very real sense, Peter understands what's in our hearts. He understands the heart of mankind. And he knows that in the heart of mankind, ultimately is rejection of God. That fundamentally what we're all about by our nature is really to put God to death. We would rather see him die and us live. And so Peter really can level that, that um, accusation at everybody including us here today. Um, and, and just as an aside, so that you don't hear Peter saying, like, you, 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 right? Think about who's giving this sermon. Think about how Peter knows the heart of mankind. How Peter knows that men default to rejecting God. What was Peter doing 50 days-ish, 50 days before he is giving this sermon. One of the most famous sermons in Christian history. Not even two months before, what was he doing? He was standing in front of Jesus saying, Jesus, I will die before I you know, turn you in, or before I let you die. I would rather die than do something like that. What, an hour or two later? They say, hey, weren't you with Jesus? Nope, never heard of him. Right? Three times. Absolutely rejects him. And now... Uh, now he's giving the sermon. Peter knows all about what it's like to be involved in the death of Jesus, doesn't he? Um, he knows what our hearts are like. He knows how we reject God. And so what, what that means for us is this is the front door of Christianity, so to speak. This is why I couldn't decide which to put first. 
Because you have to go, there has to be bad news for there to be good news. For the good news of the gospel to to make any sense and to be good news, it has to be in the context of, of bad news, quite frankly. And the bad news of the sinfulness of our hearts. And so the truth of this for us is that, granted, while we may not have been involved directly in the death of Jesus, that the reason the Messiah has to look like that, has to look like someone that takes on sin, is because we're sinners. And the more that we begin to own that message, the truth of that message, the more we're going to be able to see and and understand and be able to apprehend the beauty of the answer in Jesus. And this, I think, is one of the big reasons why we're bored with the church and Christianity. Me too. is because we don't really see the problem. I think a big problem, it's so easy to get bored with the answer, Jesus, right? Jesus, I mean, yeah, I appreciate he died for my sins. It's because I don't think my sins are a big deal. I just really don't. And I think what we need to do is to, uh, we need to reevaluate. We need to take stock. We need to look at ourselves and begin to see. In a sense, it's sort of a, a strange way to, um, uh, to, to appreciate the gospel. But it's really the only way we can appreciate the gospel. Um, to look deeper into our hearts and see that there really is some messed up stuff there that I just can't do anything about. Uh, that my heart really is black. Um, and the, the things that I'm not fundamentally good, right? With I'm fundamentally good with a little bad stuff sprinkled in there. No, that's not the case. Um, you know, maybe, well, I'll just ask you, have you seen it in your own heart before at all? Uh, maybe you wonder why you don't love Jesus more. And it's probably because you have a small view of your sin. It's probably because I have a small view of my sin. Have you ever had that moment in your life, at least once, where you realized that you've offended the most powerful being in the universe and there's not much you can do about it? In fact, there's nothing you can do about it. If you have, I would ask you, what, what was your response to that? Hopefully, it looks like verse 37, where they say they're obviously in the same situation. And they say, brothers, what shall we do? They realize that this is true about them. Hopefully, we realize that's true about us. So what's the appropriate response? Well, our third point. Repent and be baptized. The last part of the message, verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. The hearers of this message are cut to the heart, and they, say, they, they, they realize, wow, we did kill Jesus. <laughs> what in the world do I do? Um, and Peter says, repent and be baptized. And because it might seem strange to say, like, all right, the beauty of the gospel is that there's nothing that you can do, right? God, it's about God's done everything for you. So here's what you do. Here's how you respond. Well, we need to define, I think, repent. What does, what does it mean to repent? Well, it literally means to change your mind. It means to, to turn, to turn from one thing to something else. It's a turning from sin Turning from our sin to faith in God. And now be careful to hear me say, it's not turning from sin to doing the right thing. That's not what repentance is. It's turning from sin to trusting in God. Faith and repentance. Repentance and faith. Two sides of the same coin. Um, Repentance is not a work that we do. Repentance is not... 
Repentance is not the one good work that God accepts. It's not it at all. In fact, repentance is the opposite of working. It's trusting. It's turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. And I think that's the the beauty and the power of the message that the church has to offer to people, to tell people, including us. And here's why I think another reason, this is the last bit of application, here's why another reason why I think that we easily get bored with the church, bored with Jesus, bored with our own spirituality, is because we typically think that the message of Christianity is this. You've killed Jesus, whatever, you're a sinner, right? You do bad things, I do bad things. So what do I do? We typically think the answer is, do better. And we probably wouldn't say it like that, but that's what we default to thinking the answer is. And I would suggest we default to wanting the answer to be. And so we get bored with church, we get bored with Christianity, because what we hear it saying, whether we really are listening or not, is, you know you shouldn't do that stuff that you do. You know you shouldn't... Um, hook up with whoever. You know you shouldn't look at porn. You know you shouldn't drink like you do. You know you shouldn't. You should love your friends more. You know you should not talk to your parents that way. Whatever. It's a stop. And just get it right. That's what we tend to think the answer is. So what do I do? Well, you know what to do. Quit. Get it right. And that's not the answer. That's not the message that Christianity and the church has for us. It's not the message that we have for the world. The message is not that you clean yourself up and then you get to come to God. The message is that you get to come to God the way you are. You get to bring yourself and your sin and all of it. In fact, it's the only way you get to come. Peter says, what do you do? You just repent and be baptized. You turn and you trust. The only condition that you have to meet to be loved by God is that you come and trust him. So let me end with this. How, how in the world can that be? How can, it, how can that be the case that if I've really offended God himself, right? If I, as my old campus ministry say, I'm flipping both middle fingers in God's face. It's pretty much what I do in my life. That I've been that offensive to God. How can, how can it be that all I do is just repent? and I, I just trust him and I'm saved. And the answer is really because of our first point. The answer is because Jesus is both God and Christ. The answer is that that God himself came and switched places with us. That he came and he took on, he took all the punishment and all, all the wrath that we deserve and he wore it on himself. And he took all the righteousness that he earned and 32, 3, whatever years of life, and he put it on us. The sinless, perfect Son of God, God in the flesh, was crucified by the rejection of his people. But it was his plan all along. And actually, on the cross, Jesus is crucified as the rejection of his people. Listen to Colossians 2, 13 and 14. This is good. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, 
having having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay, see what, he, see what that says. Our sins, the record of our debt, is what stands against us, and it was nailed to the cross. Okay, but wait a minute. I thought Jesus was nailed to the cross. Yes. You see the point? That Jesus on the cross becomes our sin. It's the same thing. He identifies himself with it. He takes the punishment for us so that we get to go free. Does anybody watch Friday Night? I'm going to end with this illustration. Anybody watch Friday Night Lights, the, the series, TV show? No? Good. Yes. Well, I'm going to, if you haven't seen this current season, if you have DirecTV, which is a plug for DirecTV, you can watch it. So I'm going to ruin it for you. One of the little uh, episode storylines going throughout the season, this is what storylines do is the story of the Riggins brothers, Tim and Billy Riggins. Billy has a family. He's kind of made a wreck of it, but he's got a wife and a kid, and he starts losing money, and so he opens up a, uh, a chop shop. You know, he gets stolen cars and breaks them down into pieces, and so it's illegal. Can't do that. And he ends up getting busted for it. His brother Tim, single guy, Young guy, was a football star at Texas A&M or something like that. When his, buddy get, when his brother gets caught, he says, I'm going to take, I'm going down for it. Because they don't know who it is. They, they both own it together, but it was the brother with the family that had done all the bad stuff. And he says, I'm going to go down for it. And Billy says, you, you can't do that. And he says, I can't do that, and I'm going to do that. He says, why in the world would you do that? And he says, because you've got a family and i got, you know, I don't. And so Tim goes to prison for two years because he says, it, he just comes in and goes to the police station. It was me. Brother didn't have anything to do with it. He didn't even know about it. So he goes to prison for two years. And so as you watch, the, as you watch it, you know, what you see is this. If you looked at him then, you would say, this guy's pathetic. He's a, he's, a, he's a car thief. He's been in prison for a couple years, a jailbird. Um, this guy's a loser. But if you've been watching the season, if you've been watching along, you realize, no, no, no. This guy's not a loser, not the loser that he looks like. (laughs) This guy's a hero. Why? Because he switched places with his brother. So his brother could have everything that he wanted. And he took all the the stuff that that he shouldn't have to have. And it's beautiful. And the reason it's beautiful, the reason you watch that and cry, if you're me... And the reason you watch that and think it's cool, hopefully, if you're a guy. I am a guy, but. Is because it taps into the story. The reason that's good is because it touches a little bit on this story, the story of redemption. It's not the other way around, right? And that's the message that the church and Christianity has for us. The message that God himself would switch places with us and do it for free. So if you need forgiveness, then you're called to repent and believe. Trust Jesus. He's offered to you for free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, is it really that, is it really that free? It costs you a great deal. 
but you offer it to us for free, and uh, Father, forgive us for how we don't believe that. Uh, We believe, but help our unbelief. And Lord, for those of us that don't believe, would you make it to be so? Lord, would we be enraptured by the thought of the message that you have for us and that the church has for the world, that that as bad as we are, that I'm far worse than I can imagine, but God, you have loved us more than I could ever, than we could ever dream. Jesus, we pray that that would be true, and we thank you that it is. May we rest and trust in it. Jesus, in your name, amen.